invite, if you would, um, just continue to kind of scrunch together, if you don't mind. Um, we got a few folks that are looking for a place uh, to sit, and so if you don't mind, get a little cheek-to-cheek -cheek maybe, all right? And I want to invite you, if you would, if you have your copy of God's Word, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Uh, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. I'd encourage you to use that, and you can find uh, that passage on page 884, all right? And so here's what I'd like us to do. I want us to walk through the Christmas story this morning from Scripture and then I'll make a few comments on it. And as we do, I just really want you to think about the magnitude and the message. Uh, just the, the, just w what is God's Word saying to us and why is it important? Why is it such a big deal, all right? And so Luke chapter 2, uh, the passage will also be on the screen in front of you there. And so let's read that together, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 20, all right? And so... We'll take our time walking through this, and then, like I said, uh, just let me make a few comments as to it, and then we'll continue on our time of worship. So God's Word says to us, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger." because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David... A Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for this season. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together and to celebrate the incarnation of the Messiah. Thank you, Lord God, that you sent your Son to this earth. 
that you sent him to dwell among us. And we thank you, Lord, not only for the cradle, but Lord God, we thank you for the cross, the purpose for which Christ came, to die and to pay the penalty of our sin, to redeem us from our empty way of life, to rescue us from darkness, to liberate us from sin. And Lord Jesus, help us to celebrate and to rejoice in that truth today. In your name we pray, amen. Now, as we walk through this for, for just a few moments, I, I want to look back real quickly at the introduction to Luke's gospel. And listen carefully to what Luke says. Luke says this, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the, the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed, a good, seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Now, why do I share that with you? For this reason. As we dive in and as we look at this Christmas story, I, I want you to know this. Luke was a physician. And I want you to think about your experience with medical doctors. When you go to the doctor, you, you, you're, you're dealing with a certain ailment, you're feeling a certain way, and you go to that doctor. What is the first thing the doctor does? He begins, he or she begins to ask you key questions, right? They're trying to uncover, they're trying to discover exactly what may be going on. Well, how do you feel about this? And your answers will lead them to other questions as they're trying to discern, they're trying to diagnose what may be going on. And then what will they also do? They'll order some tests to be done. They'll order some lab work, okay? They'll order, uh, th that, and that lab work will determine, hey, how well are your kidneys functioning? How well is your liver functioning? What does your blood pressure look like? What does your heart rate look like? They're going to do test after test and ask question after question, trying to diagnose, trying to, to find the, the answer to what you may be dealing with. If further tests are needed, you, you know this, they, they may order a, a, a CT scan. If that's not enough, maybe they order an MRI, and maybe if that's not enough, they, they've got to biopsy a particular um, piece of, of your, your flesh or whatever it may be. And so they're, they're going to continue to do whatever needs to be done to find the answer, right? Well, the Bible tells us in, Col in Colossians chapter 4 that Luke was a physician. He, he was a medical doctor. And the language he shares with us implies that, that, that he, he went through incredible research to compile this narrative that we call the Gospel of Luke. He asked a lot of questions. He interviewed a lot of people. But what does he say there? He interviewed and, and asked questions of the original eyewitnesses, those who had experienced these very things. He met with a centurion who came to faith in Christ. He met with the woman whose son had been raised from the dead. He met with those who had been fed that meal from one sack lunch. And he carefully investigated this, and he did his homework. And when it was all done, he put it all together in a format, in a narrative that you and I can easily understand and follow. And notice what else he says to us. Why did he do this? He says, so that you may know, watch this, the certainty of the things about which you've been instructed. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you're a little uncertain as to the message of Christ. You're a little uncertain as to the reliability of Scripture. Maybe you're a little uh, skeptical about the Bible and what it teaches us and where it came from and how we received it. Luke wants you to know this morning with certainty that these things are true. You don't have to doubt it. You don't have to be skeptical. You don't have to be critical of it. We're called to believe it. Now, let's walk through this story for just a moment. Here's what we're told in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Look again with me. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. This was the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time. Okay, the most powerful man on planet Earth at the time. And he made a decision that he wanted a census to be taken of the entire empire. He wanted to know how many people were under his domain, under his authority, under his leadership. I, quite, kind of, I find it quite fascinating that God would use a pagan emperor to bring about the fulfillment of 700-year-old prophecy. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's keep going. Because here's what we read beginning in verse 4. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was the house and family line of David. He went there to be registered to participate in the census along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. Joseph and Mary were a very nondescript, a very ordinary, average Hebrew family that lived in the city of Nazareth. The Bible teaches us that he was a carpenter. Joseph was a carpenter. So how does God fulfill a prophecy from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would be born in Bethlehem when his parents live in Nazareth? There would be no logical reason for Joseph and Mary to travel from the north of Israel to the south of Israel just to give birth. That, that would make no logical sense. None, none of us would do that. No, no husband in his right mind would say, hey, babe, why don't we do this? Why don't we load up on the back of a donkey? Or why don't we walk several hundred miles uh, down to Bethlehem so that you can give birth there? Every woman would have looked at him and said, you've lost your absolute mind, right? We're not doing that. I'm not interested in that. It was a hard journey. It wasn't an easy journey. They didn't have cars, and they didn't have wagons, and they didn't have interstates and, and paved roads. There were a few bricked roads, but not very many. And yet, by order of this pagan emperor, Joseph and Mary had to leave Nazareth and travel to Bethlehem so that she could give birth to her firstborn son. 700 years of prophecy. Let me just remind you of how old that is. That would be the same as someone in the year 1323 prophesying about something happening this year. That's the magnitude of it. Can you imagine that? What if someone in the year 1323 had prophesied that Alabama is going to win the SEC football championship? And it happened. That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> now, nobody in 1323 made that prophecy. But in 700 B.C., 
The prophet Micah, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Think about that for a moment. But let's keep going. They went to Bethlehem. It says that Joseph, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant, the language engaged to him reminds us that they were not married. They had not consummated their marriage. They were legally bound to one another and could only be separated by a formal divorce decree, but they had not consummated their marriage. They had not stood at the altar, if you will, in our context and said, I do, and yet she's pregnant. Now, you know the story. She wasn't pregnant with Joseph's child. She was pregnant by the Holy Spirit of God, a miraculous birth, a miraculous conception, okay? It remains a miracle today. So it's a once-in-a-history event, a once-in-a-history phenomenon. Now look with me beginning there in verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. The same prophet Isaiah, again 700 years prior, had announced that the Messiah would be a son, and he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And again, we see 700-year-old prophecy fulfilled in that stable in Bethlehem. Also in chapter 1, in verses 31 through 33, the angel Gabriel had come to Mary, and he says this, Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, Mary was a righteous lady. She, she was a young lady that knew scriptural truth, and she understood this language. She, when, when the angel made these statements to her, Mary's mind was not oblivious to the fact that these are messianic titles, that this refers to God's promised Messiah. Can you imagine what this young lady must have been thinking? Are you kidding me? Our, our prophets have spoken of the Messiah for, for hundreds, for thousands of years, and you're telling me that this child that is in my womb is going to be the son of the Most High, and he's going to sit on the throne of David, and he's going to reign forever and ever. This is the Messiah you've promised us? What a phenomenal word of truth. And she gives birth to her firstborn son. She wraps him in a cloth and she lies him in a manger. Now, look with me beginning of verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. If we're not careful, we'll just kind of skim over this and, and not, not grab hold of the significance. In the same region, shepherds. Shepherds were the lowest men on the socioeconomic totem pole. They were considered dirty and unclean because all they did was hang out with sheep. And they would keep these sheep. Now, here's what's interesting. These shepherds weren't keeping just any sheep. These shepherds were responsible for, for watching over and protecting the sheep 
that would be slaughtered as an atoning sacrifice in the work of the temple. These weren't just any ordinary sheep. These were sheep from which an unblemished lamb would be found that would be served up on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, on that one day of the year as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Don't you find it fascinating that the angel of God went to the shepherds, the lowest individuals on the socioeconomic ladder, to announce that the Messiah had been born, to announce that the Lamb of God had come on the scene. Basically to say to them, guess what, guys? You're out of a job. You're no longer important. I don't need someone to watch over the sheep because we don't need any sheep to be sacrificed. That's ultimately what would happen. It says when the angel appeared to them, what does it say? They were terrified. It's quite interesting. When the angel appeared to Mary, she was bewildered and terrified. When the angel appeared to Joseph, it says he was terrified. And I can promise you this right now. If an angel from God appeared in this place right now, enveloped in the glory of God, you and I would be terrified. It would bring us all to our knees. But what does the angel do? The angel comforts them and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I love that word all, because the message of Christ is not just for those few people in Bethlehem who witnessed his birth, who are aware of it. It wasn't just for the Jewish people, but it's for all people, every man, woman, and child of every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. The gospel is for, the message of Christ is for all people. And then he goes on to say, Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. How will you find this baby in the city of Bethlehem? You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Now notice what we read here. The angel announces to these shepherds, Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, the Messiah, the Lord. The word Savior means deliverer, rescuer, redeemer. I, I'm going to give you three, three words, and they all start with the letter P. So you can easily remember it. Maybe you want to write it down. When it talks about the Savior, remember what the angel announced to Joseph. When Joseph realized that his wife, that his soon-to-be wife was pregnant, and he, knew, he knows and understands, wait a minute, we haven't been intimate with one another well, that can only mean one thing, right? In the logical mind of man. Well, Mary had been unfaithful. So the Bible says he had made a decision that he would divorce her secretly, quietly, so as not to bring any additional shame on her. And the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, you were right in your plans, but let me tell you what's going on. There's something bigger happening here. Marry this woman. Spend the rest of your life with her. She loves you and you love her, for the child that is in her is from the Holy Spirit of God. And she's going to give birth to a son, and you're going to name him Jesus. And then he says this, for he will save his people from their sins. So when you see the word Savior, when you hear the word Savior, here's what I want you to understand. Number one, Jesus came to save us first 
from the penalty of our sin. From the penalty of our sin. That's the first word, penalty. For what does the Bible teach us? The Bible teach us, teaches us that the penalty of sin, the ultimate consequence of sin, listen carefully, is eternal separation from a holy and righteous God. To be more specific, Revelation chapter 20, we just studied it a few weeks ago. At the great white throne judgment of God, the Bible teaches us that every human being, every man, woman, and child that's ever been conceived in the womb of a woman who has rejected Christ as Savior will be sentenced for all of eternity in the lake of fire. You and I also understand that to be hell. And Jesus came to save us from the ultimate consequence of sin, from the ultimate penalty of sin, which is eternal separation from a holy and righteous God in a place the Bible calls hell. But not only did he come to save us from the penalty of our sin, the Bible says he also came to save us from the power of sin. As you and I surrender in faith to Christ, and as we grow in Christ, as we seek to know him and follow him and obey him and worship him and live our life for him, something amazing happens. The power that sin has over us begins to wane. And you and I begin to walk closely and intimately and passionately with Christ. So he came to save us from the penalty of sin. He came to save us from the power of sin. And then thirdly, he came to save us from the presence of sin. Listen to me, there is coming a day for all of us who have surrendered in faith to Christ that one day you and I will be brought into the presence of Christ. We'll be brought into his very presence where you and I will be free from the presence of, of sin for all of eternity. The temptations and the challenges and the struggles that, that we face from sin today will be no more, for there will be no sin in God's presence. And so when you think about Christ as Savior, he came to save us first from the penalty of sin, eternal separation from God in a place the Bible calls hell. He came to save us from the power of sin in our everyday life, and he came to save us from ultimately the presence of sin that we will enjoy in his presence, in, in his eternity with him. He's our Savior. He's Messiah. He is Lord. He is Master. He is Sovereign. And notice what the angel says, verse 12. How will you find this baby? How are you going to find him? Well, obviously, it's going to be a unique situation, right? He says, here's how, here, here's how you're going to find him. You'll find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. That's the last place you'd expect to find a baby, right? Lying in a feeding trough full of hay. Let, let me tell you a, a, a funny story. Our niece has a two-year-old. And she has a nativity set in her house, and it has a, you know, baby Jesus lying in a manger. Well, she kept going to this nativity scene realizing the baby Jesus was missing. It wasn't in the manger. And she'd put it back in there, and then she'd come again, and she'd see that it wasn't there. So she asked her son, her two-year-old, says, where is baby Jesus? He said, Mom. Baby Jesus not go in the hay. 
That's for the animals. Baby Jesus is in the bedroom. <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? You don't put a baby in a feeding trough full of hay, right? That doesn't make sense. He, he, a, as a two-year-old, we understand this, this isn't normal. But that was a distinguishing characteristic of the birth of Jesus. Listen, he, the angels didn't tell the shepherds to go look in a palace. They didn't tell the shepherds to go look in a penthouse. They didn't tell the shepherds to go look in the temple. They said, when you find a baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger, you've found the Messiah. He didn't come born under great pomp and circumstance. He came in humility, born to a humble family, born in humble circumstances, because he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why we find him in a manger. That's why we find a baby lying in a feeding trough full of hay that's meant for the animals. And then we read this. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Can you imagine what these shepherds must have been going through that night? First, an angel appears to them. They're scared to death, and he comforts them. He reassures them. And then, along with this angel, an entire chorus of heaven arrives, and they begin to worship the Lord. <laughs> they had to be just bewildered. They had to be just ecstatic at this, right? Are you kidding me? We're just lowly shepherds. Listen, we're just trying to keep these sheep alive long enough so that the priest can sacrifice them. That's all we're doing. We're just minding our own business. And then a heavenly choir shows up and they begin to sing the Lord's praises. Verse 15, when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 16, they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Now, I want you to think about this. It says they hurried off. Well, who's watching the sheep? You can't leave sheep alone. They're, they're really dumb animals. They'll just wander off, do their own thing. You, you've got to watch them 24-7. You don't get to leave sheep, but the shepherds didn't care. Why? Because there was an unblemished lamb, the Messiah, who'd just been born. They, they wanted to see this lamb of God. They weren't worried about the four-legged kind anymore. Someone bigger and better was here. So they left the sheep. They hurried into town. Verse 17, after seeing them, after finding Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. Think about this. Mary had to be thinking about what the angel Gabriel had said to her nine, nine months earlier. And she's just pondering these things. She had to think about what the angel said to Joseph as he went into the temple to perform his duty, uh, as, as he was doubting what God was doing. She had to begin to think about these things. And now she's, she's given birth to the Messiah, and she's pondering what these, 
these shepherds have come to her with this message from the angel, and she's, she's, she just, she's just thinking about all these things. And then look at verse 20. The shepherds returned. So those of you that were worried, they, went, they, they made it back to the sheep, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. And that is a good word for us today. Because here's the reality. Listen carefully. If you have experienced the Lord Jesus Christ, you will live a life that glories and praises God. Because you can't encounter Jesus Christ and ever be the same. The shepherds would never be the same, for they had met the Messiah the Savior of the world, and what now their life was one that brought him glory and praise. And that's true for you and me. If you have had a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ, then your life is being led for his glory and for his praise. It's the only acceptable response. No other response is even close to being acceptable because you and I were created to bring glory to God. And the only way we can do that is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that leads me to this place. Have you encountered Jesus Christ? Have you made a personal decision to surrender in faith to the Messiah, to the Lord? If not, why not? Why not today? Why not let him save you from the penalty of your sin? Why not let him begin to save you from the power of sin in your life? Why not rest in the hope that he will save you from the presence of sin one day in all of eternity? I want to give you that opportunity today. I was reminded of something this week. Often, as we close our time together each Sunday... I lead you in a prayer. I lead you in a prayer in hopes that that is the attitude of your heart. But I was reminded, and I need to remind you, that prayer does not save you. There's no prayer of salvation found in Scripture, interestingly. But I do believe that the principles of that prayer are found throughout the Bible. And as a preacher of the gospel, I would be negligent in God's call on my life if I didn't give you an opportunity to respond to what God may be doing in your heart today. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite you to say yes to Jesus today. Not because I think there's anything special or powerful about this prayer, but because if it expresses the desire of your heart, I believe God will save you and redeem you today. So would you bow your heads with me? Would you close your eyes? Some of you walked in to this room this morning to celebrate Christmas with friends or family. And I'm so glad that you did. I'm so glad. I think that is awesome. But the God of the universe, the God who created you, the God who hung every star in the sky, 
the God who gave you breath and life today had bigger plans. For some of you today, you came here not knowing Christ as your, as your personal Lord and Savior. You're familiar with religion, you're familiar with spirituality, but the reality is you've never surrendered in faith to Christ and received God's gift of salvation. And I want to give you the opportunity to do, to do just that this morning. Because right now, here's what I know is happening. Your heart is racing a little faster than normal. Your palms are beginning to sweat a little. There's a bead beginning to show up on your forehead. Because the God of the universe is drawing you to himself. And he's doing so through his Holy Spirit, who is revealing to you your sin and your need of a Savior. And together they are drawing you to God the Son, Jesus Christ. It is the single greatest invitation that is available for any of member of, human, of the human race. It is to be invited into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And this morning, right now, where you're seated, God is inviting you to surrender in faith to his Son. Pastor, what do I do? How do I respond in faith? What do I do about this? Well, I want to encourage you in this way. One, if you're here today and you know Christ as Savior, I want you to begin to pray for those around you right now. You may not know their name. You may not know their spiritual condition, but I want you to begin to pray for them, that they would respond in faith. If right now you know the Holy Spirit of God is drawing you to Jesus Christ, there is something going on in your heart and your mind that you were totally unfamiliar with. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God working in you, drawing you to himself. I want you to respond in faith. Well, how do I do that, Pastor? It's amazingly simple. Romans chapter 10 says that, that if you... Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. So right where you're seated, just cry out to the Lord with something, with words similar to this. Father God, I know that I'm guilty of sin against you. I know that I've rebelled against your righteous standards. I believe that Jesus Christ is your one and only son. I believe that he died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin. I believe that he rose from the dead and is alive today. And Father God, as best as I understand this, right now, in this moment, Lord, I want to surrender my life to you. Here's my life, Lord. Take it. Save me. Redeem me. Rescue me. Deliver me, Lord. I want to live my life for your glory and for your honor. I want to know you as Lord and as Savior. By faith, by faith I received your gift of salvation. I am yours, Lord, and you are mine. And friends, by the authority of God's word, not the language of a prayer, but by the authority of God's word, if that expresses your heart's desire and you are sincere in that prayer, 
God has redeemed you and rescued you and delivered you from sin today. You are his child, and you will spend eternity with him. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the Christmas story. Thank you for coming to this earth to die for us, to rescue us from darkness, to redeem us from our empty way of life, to liberate us from sin, to reconcile us to you, to adopt us into your family for your glory and for your honor. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.